0: be the weird you want to see in the world i'll see you next time on the power of weird add us to your favorites add us to your favorites add us to your favorites are we on the air yes you are evening good morning good afternoon wherever you may be around this wild wacky and sometimes disturbing world of ours yes that's the intro to the mindset podcast a weekly attempt to open eyes and shedding light on what's really going on in the world all done by ripping apart the media madness that masquerades as news Join me, Gareth Davis, every Sunday on the Mindset Podcast. You can find the show on all major podcasting services, such as iTunes, Stitcher, and so on. Or you can go directly to the main Mindset website. That's www.mindsetcentral.com. Check out the Mindset Podcast. Bring your curiosity, your opinions, and a sense of humor. And remember that some worldviews are stranger than others. Welcome to the Dead America podcast. It's time to learn something new right now. Let's listen in with your host, Ed Waters, as he learns new things and meets new people.
1: Today, we want to give much respect to our guest today, Felipe Blue. He is a Navy veteran. He was a Crip at 14 years of age, and now he has turned into a counselor. Talk about changing your narrative, Felipe. Would you introduce yourself, tell the people just a little bit about what you do and how you got to where you are? Yes, sir.
2: My name is Felipe Bloom. I'm a mental health and addictions therapist located in Durham, North Carolina. I work for a for-profit agency to some degree, and I also have a nonprofit of my own called Modern Therapy where I fill in the gaps in mental health services and health services in the Durham, Raleigh, North Carolina area. The story, you know, started a long, long time ago, and it's based on the concept of, I am what I would want to receive or I try to get what I would want to receive or what would have helped me in my journey in life. I'm sure if the right interventions, the right strategies were put in place, the right programs were in place, I wouldn't have had the walk of life that I had to some degree. Luckily, you know what I'm saying, I was able to escape those, perilous paths of life and get on the right track and be able to be a beacon of light for others, but how many people fall through the cracks and don't have the same opportunity of life changing and end up in jail or end up dead or end up on drugs or homeless and trying to keep people from those paths or take people away from those paths and let them know that yesterday does not define today. And even if it does to some degree, where there's a will, there's a way. You will find a plan of action in order to move past it and get past it as I have, or that I continue to do, because every day is a new day,
1: and every day is a day to be better than the day before. Finding that, especially when you're stuck, it's not easy to do. What was the one thing or combination of things that really made your mind change and say, hey, I don't want to do this anymore?
2: When I lived in New London, Connecticut, you know, my brother and I, we were up there. We were um, heavily involved in gang activity. He was into drugs. You know, um, He used to have a habit of ripping his marijuana and formaldehyde. Up there, they used to call it wet or woos. And he just got into a lot of incidents, in which caused him to get into some bad predicaments, and one of these predicaments caused him to be murdered, um, assassinated. And I think that was a wake-up call as his death was July 13, 1995, and I don't have a clear recollection of the two years after that. I know we went to trial. I know that some things happened as consequences related to his death. But I if I wrote a book, that would be a very, very, blank chapter because I can't really remember that time. I know I was probably heavily on drugs, numbing the pain, and, you know, I guess I was communicating with my um, girlfriend from when I was in high school who was now in the military and was living down south, and she just basically told me that I don't need to be in Connecticut anymore and that, you know, come down to Florida with her. And That's what I did, and I was pretty much the life changer. Somebody reached out for support, and that allowed me to get my head straight, get involved in activities that benefited my wellness, go back to school and in the school program, I was going to school for business, and I took a philosophy class as an elective, and it was just so mind broadening and the, you know just the thinking outside of the box and thinking of things differently than how they're presented in the world and I was saying. I don't think I could do business for the rest of my life as a career, but I do think I could be in the helping field as people are dynamic, people are different. Even if they have the same diagnosis, this, let's say depression, each person's journey to getting the diagnosis of depression is different. So I feel like I could be in the helping field, and that is something I can do for life. So I changed my major. years later, I became a
1: therapist. It's weird how the world sends us in different directions to become what we are. And, you know, sometimes those beginning years can be very troublesome. I know I came from a very troubled background and I shouldn't have had a future. I thought I would be dead by the age of 25. So Mm -hmm. living that life of drugs, you know, just going for everything you can. It's, it's a thrill. So yeah. what got you to that point where you wanted to go out and really, you know, it, for me, it started at nine years old. My brothers would blow marijuana smoke into my face. And mm-hmm. my uncle, he he was handing me Boone's Farm wine and saying, the day you can get the cap off, you can drink with me. Well, nine years old, I got the cap off and I became an alcoholic drug addict and many, many more experimental drugs came with that, you know. So something always gets us to the point where we're starting to explore, experiment. I noticed you said that your mother had a mental illness. I I was raised around that also. Can we kind of hit on what kind of family circumstances brings us to the point where we want to indulge in that experimental drugs to escape?
2: Yeah, well, mine is a complicated tale. Some things i probably leave out just based on memory. But I remember a time when my mom and dad were divorced and we were staying in Biloxi, Mississippi. And, um, a man broke into the house and tried to with my mom. And I was maybe five or six at the time, maybe seven. And I was just going to call, call the police, call the police. I knew the concept of dialing 911, but I didn't know how to do it. Well, so I knew the concept. Uh, using a phone in that way, was, I mean, using a phone, period, was foreign to me. You know, It wasn't this time period in which we have cell phones and all that. And so I, I panicked and I was like, I don't know how, I don't know how. And I tried and I tried and I couldn't. Luckily, the man, you know, he ran off, but it was still a traumatic event. And then my mom, she was just, like, berating me about not knowing how to dial 911. But if you don't teach the child, then how would the child know? They don't teach you in school how to dial 911. Yeah, we sure we know the concept. But then you got to think. This is, like, 1984, 85, maybe 83, in which, what, phones were rotary for the most part? You might have some touchpad phones, but not like what we have today. Anyway, so that was an event that I felt less than, I felt like I could have been more and I, I I saw myself, you know, as smaller than I was in some ways. My mom had um like she was diagnosed she didn't she was diagnosed much later in life. She didn't she wasn't diagnosed at the time. So, you know, she had a bipolar disorder. But she didn't know she had bipolar disorder. She just knew that she was going through some stuff in life. We got into an incident, and we moved back to, we moved to South Carolina. And in South Carolina, you know I'm saying, she got into some maladaptive and addictive behaviors. Um, she was impacted by racism in her workplace as a chemist at on um, Pharmaceuticals in South Carolina. And just, you know, her lack of interaction, she used to work 12-hour shifts. When she come home, she'd sleep. But she wasn't sleeping. She would go out to party, or she would go out to, um, go back to work. And the streets pretty much raised us. I was first introduced to drugs probably around maybe 12, 13 years old. My friend uh, Ducky, you know what I'm saying, he was into those type of behaviors, mainly marijuana and stuff, a little um, powder here and there. I didn't really mess with the powder, as I thought marijuana was um, enough. Um, years later, you know, when I was in Connecticut, you know, I was dealing drugs to some degree, just marijuana, like minimizing or anything, but marijuana. But my compadres, my gang members, you know, they might have been dealing harder drugs after my brother got trapped into that that trap. And after his death, you know, alcohol, heroin, cocaine, all that was on the table for me to indulge in because I was numb to the pain. I blamed myself for the death of my brother if I was more protective of him, if I, you know what I'm saying, and put my arms around him tighter to keep him away from the things that we were into. We weren't supposed to be in gangs, we were rappers, you know what I'm saying, we were musicians, somehow our music transitioned us into being in the gang as, you know, I guess, mouthpieces or um, horns of glory regarding gang activity, you know what I'm saying, we just fell into that life, it wasn't natural or native for us to be into that life you know, just to, I guess, to give our music more punch, to give it more realism, the stuff that we were doing We didn't want to just rap about this stuff. We wanted to be back in a reality that we ourselves experienced. In hindsight, I see that was very foolish. I think the most most devastating drug to me probably was, well, I never ever got into like an accident or anything on any drug other than marijuana, which is funny. I I was supposed to go out and get some more papers, more rap. Fully really blunt, we used to take, and, you know, take all the tobacco out, roll the weed in, and blah, blah, driving. And I was driving, and I was um, I got into an accident. I was just like, what? Marijuana can cause you to have a DWI? This doesn't make no sense to me. I thought it was just an alcohol thing, and I think that was like the light bulb of wanting to change, but not yet making that left turn to change. That's yeah. just the one thing they don't teach you when they say my time period about marijuana. You know, we thought the marijuana was the safest of all drugs. I knew everything else I was doing was damning. Um, but I thought I could at least do marijuana, you know, standard and all. But then I just saw that, you know, anything I guess on the brain is debilitating in some way, impairing you in some way. And when I got into that accident, that grand three nineteen seventy eight, 1978, that's my baby. <laughs> I was I was feeling some kind of way. I was like, Well damn, damn, this is, this is my car and, Man, nobody told me. I was, and then I was going slow. I realized I was going slow. I might have been on a forty. I might have been going twenty. You know, just this thing that, that drugs had you doing, just you know, yeah. altering your state to such a degree that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing or how you're supposed to be doing it. Yeah. Even when I moved to Connecticut, I mean, when I moved back, when I moved to Florida with my who um, then became my wife, I was still doing marijuana because I was like, yeah, hey, you know, this is just, you know. It's the least of the concerns. People should have more concerns about nicotine cigarettes than they do have marijuana. But I did notice that, in hindsight, that it was a uh, causing me to be okay with situations that shouldn't have been okay. Things that I should have been working on, not being so concerned about working on them because I wasn't motivated to do so. You know what I'm saying? When I was free and clear of all drugs, that's when I saw clarity and I saw it damn. I was really, really messing up in the past.
1: It's odd the influence that our culture and society really has on us. And if we we just go along to get along, we fall into these traps. It's pretty easy. So being aware and staying educated is pretty, pretty big. What was the moment that, you decided to educate yourself was it when you decided you're going to the navy or did the navy put the education into you
2: i think the education was always in me but i think i took a side road by going into the navy i got i was involved in some gang activity in high school when i was um i was um i was I was at a rally and I was just causing a ruckus. At school one day, I was suspended, but went back on school campus. I got arrested for disorderly conduct and um, what's disorderly conduct and trespassing. They gave me thirty and 30, They gave me thirty days. Uh, thirty days community service. I took thirty days community service. I still had a little bit of time left. I excelled very. I excelled on the ASVAB, which is the military interest exam of some sort. And I just kept on being. Um, uh, people kept on coming. But, Air Force wanted me, the Navy wanted me, the the Marines wanted me, the army wanted me. But, you know, I needed to graduate and they just I had another year to go because I kept getting in trouble at school, being suspended or being expelled to dumb stuff like rapid. You know, yeah, you know, rapid is school I guess. But Nothing with us at a mushroom table or sending up this. not so much, you know. <laughs> um, getting into gang fights with my um, little papa in the hallway. Over nothing. You know, it's like the stupidest thing. Just because we saw something on TV or we saw a movie or we heard a song that we liked and wanted to emulate like that. This is, this is no identity. So you find an identity by adhering to these stupid norms. And you know, so then going to the navy and You know, the GI Bill was basically the catalyst, you know what I'm saying? Well, I can go to school for three, four times based on this GI Bill. I knew that, you know, I didn't have a GED. I didn't have a high school diploma. I was having significant issues while in the Navy. I guess I wasn't meant to be in the Navy. I'm not the type of person that should be in the Navy. I don't like taking orders, I guess. (laughs) Um, And the first division that I um, transition to in the Navy, it wasn't beneficial to me. I um, I was on the submarine service, and whew, you had to be a particular type of person that would want to be on the submarine with that many people of the same set for extended periods of time, and it just wasn't a good fit for me. I was uh, a yeoman, person personnelman, which is with the administration for the, um, the captain and the po captain you know, they treated me well. You know, they were nice to me, nice. But it was a very toxic, toxic environment. You know, it was a very racially, racial, you know, you know, maybe two African Americans, two Hispanics. I and mean, then the other 163 people were Caucasians from, you know, states that probably didn't know a lot about black, but didn't really, you know, deal with African Americans or Hispanics. And it was very hard on me. So, you know, I was and I didn't like it. Um, I went A and then when I came back, you know, I was I had to go to a um, mental health treatment and I was being treated by a E eight. So it's a senior master sergeant a senior um sergeant, senior chief or something like that. So a senior chief doesn't have a master's or associate's degree or any of that stuff. So they might just be somebody like had a high school diploma, went the military and three years of service, they up their rank, to E eight. Anyway, if you just say derogatory remarks about me and derogatory remarks around the city that, you know, I spend a majority of my time in, um, stating, you know, basically giving me um, a prognosis or, or indication that my life is going to be shit based on how I was living, you know. They're trying to give me a self-fulfilled fantasy of, 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 a, of a, a perilous life that would end in jail or death. And in many ways, it probably would have if I did. If I did what he thought I was going to do, I didn't think that I was an appropriate mental health approach think that was a feed embedded in me that I would want to be what I would want to have received as I didn't believe that I received what I wanted and Years later when I was going to school. You know, I went to school I'm pretty much with the, the notion that I would serve better and better than I was being served when I was within the military. Okay.
1: So, I was listening to an interview on your podcast, and you were speaking with your neighbor, and he was talking about defusing the situation, learning to help each other defuse the situation. I found that fascinating, you know, how he said that people would encourage people to do the wrong thing instead of actually saying, hey, brother, step back here. Let's think a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. How, how can we change that? How, how Do you see any way that we can incorporate a better way to influence the youth where we're not putting that pumped up he-man mentality that everybody is against everybody how do we change that felipe
2: that's a million dollar question i think if we had found the formula for that we would probably find world peace because a lot of behaviors are influenced by others whether it's negative or positive But we need to and you know in the african-american community oftentimes we find that the positive others, we say they're scared or they might be gay or they might be soft or whatever. Because media has taught us that being hard, being bravado, having this machismo is the way to go. We have to change the media influence. We have to promote communication. We have to have positive role models in the community that trump the negative influences in the community, you know. We have a pension to want to adhere to what's flashy and what's bad. And then the only but that they don't see the end road, that oftentimes those cats burn out, end up on drugs themselves, end up dead, dead or end up in jail, and it's missing on their homes, you know, to get less, you on know, sentences and get consequences because of it. The formula, I guess, would be to have more positive influence. But, so, you know, we, it, it's, it's so generally generationally a person and we really have to do better regarding our relationships with one another as a whole, then women should not, you know what I'm saying, have relationships with men and have children if it doesn't have an implant of being together to raise that child uh, together, you know what I'm saying? If even if they aren't together, you know, women should encourage their sons to be real men. In order to give their children the the, the present, the life that they did not receive because their father, his father, wasn't present. I mean, it's just so many different things that contribute to the the direction of these youth. And, you know, it's just, there's not one thing that's going to fix it. There's so many things socially, educationally, vocationally, medically, mentally. You know, it's pretty much every domain. Has to have a helping component. We have to um, have a holistic approach to healing in that way to address this in that way. One particular domain is not going to address it.
1: You live right now in Durham, North Carolina. That's known as the Research Triangle, one of the top three most educated cities in the United States. And
2: not because of its own inhabitants, because of a high influence or a high transition from Indy. I
1: I notice there's always a transition. When there's a change in, like, our technological world, it started in Silicon Valley. It's really Mm -hmm. starting to branch out from there. And Durham is one of those places that really a lot of people have their – site set on yes what what differences do you see from durham to say portland oregon where you know it's got real homeless population on the streets drug and sex addiction you know all of the big major things that happen in metropolitans What's, what's the difference? What makes people look to that area to, you know, congregate to? Why aren't you seeing the same problems as you are, or are you seeing the same problems as Portland, Oregon, and we're not just hearing about it?
2: I would say, based on what you said, that we have a lot of those same problems. Because of the influx of um, high, high salary people in the area who go to the RCP, who work in the RCP, that displaces other people in other housing um, areas. Um, Durham is having a high influx of gentrification, changing old houses into newer houses. A house that they might have bought for forty, flip it, is now worth three hundred thousand or more next to a house that's still 40 they haven't flipped that one yet or they haven't bought that one from the person yet, which in turn displaces that person in the $40,000 house because the taxes based on what's now in their neighborhood is so high that they can't readily afford it, but now they have to put up their house, and then boom, next thing you know, that house is now a $400,000 house after it's been upgraded and flipped. Um, so the housing, we have a severe housing shortage especially for low-income people in Durham, North Carolina. We have multiple shelters addressing the issue. Pandemic has hit them hard, though, because of, you know, the way they have to sleep and the way they sleep. We have multiple what we call tent cities where people stay in tents in, like, wooded areas or off of highway areas in order because they're homeless. You know what I'm saying? Some choose that life based on it's easier to keep up with Their drug addiction than if they had an apartment, you know some because they just don't have the need to do anything else, they not only get seven hundred and eighty three dollars in social security benefits, and there's no apartment in tr in um, Maryland, North Carolina that you're gonna be able to afford that in unless you're in a special program um through a mental health agency or subsidized that house um, prostitution and um that's trafficking is very high. We're, on, we're off a major highway that is, has a high influx of traffickers. They'll disappear from here and from the surrounding areas all the time, You know, unfortunately.
0: We've known
2: people that, you know, that have been homeless that we never see again. Were they trafficked? Or did they die? Were they raped and killed? We don't know because they disappeared. We don't have a... And the police department has so many of those cases. There's not a good way for them to follow up and track those things. If you have the other concerns, such as traffic <laughs> and drugs maybe, you know, but even though we have a high drug in, in this area because people feel hopeless. People feel like they don't have choice, you know what I'm saying? They don't realize that you can make the choice because the, the area doesn't really allow you to see that because a lot of the jobs are high-tech, high-salary, yeah, we have a lot of food service jobs, but you can only have so many food service jobs. There's only so many entry-level jobs you're going to have in the area. We have multiple hospitals and multiple um, municipalities, and um, that's what, and it's just hard for them to transition into those topics. of jobs. We have a lot, a lot of school systems, so if you don't know, you don't know.
1: Finding out that we can be our worst enemy, that's some of the worst news we can get but generally it's true we can always be our worst enemy and finding out how to fix it it takes a lot of struggle a lot of you know self-discovery you work as a community based therapy i find that fascinating and i think it's actually how all therapy needs to be You work closely with your clients. Can you talk a little bit about community-based therapy with us?
2: Yes, community-based therapy, at least here where I'm at, is basically we go to the homes of the people. We meet them where they're at. They're in 10th city, we go to 10th city. If they have an apartment or our house, we go to their house. When you're in their house or when you're in their community or when you're in their surroundings, You're going to get the genuine person. You're going to see the actual things that impact them, the actual things that trigger them. I think when they come to an office setting, they're not going to be as open. They're not going to be as trusted. You know what I'm saying? They're not going to be able to see a good, accurate picture of what's going on with them in many cases. And I think that they're more comfortable in being open and building rapport and being honest regarding their issues. As long as you're as a clinician, a therapist to being non judgmental and being supportive regarding that, getting some action plans. I don't believe in a lot of talk therapists per se. But I do believe in in, being solution focused and giving action plans and making action plans to address the issue and get past the issue. My plan is not to have you in therapy forever. In fact if we can just do it however long it takes for you to get to where you need to get, that's fine with me. But there's gonna be plenty of people they going to be able to be on the caseload. I never have to worry about a shortage of people. but so this is a very, very thick time that we're in. Okay.
1: Now, is there a stigma with mental health in the African-American population where they see it as, hey, it's taboo? Uh, I know a lot of us as Caucasians, we see it as a taboo. What what is the reflection of the people on mental health as a African American?
2: The people that I see, um, they have Medicaid, so they have already diagnosed with a significant mental health issue and um so they've already accepted the diagnosis. So I don't see the taboo per se. I see people just coming into service, maybe being reluctant of having the diagnosis because there's a high stigma associated for certain mental illnesses, but um, I believe in normalizing. Um, I believe in, you know, connecting them to services to let them know that it's normal, like mommy and things like that. I believe in giving them literature to show them that it's normalized to show the media that it's normalized. My social media says it's normalized it to let you know. that you're not, you're not your diagnosis. Your diagnosis may be an attribute of you, but it's an attribute that you can overcome by doing certain things whether it's medication, whether it's using strategies or, or interventions, or whether it's just eliminating the things that
1: impact you so those stresses aren't impacting you anymore. After all said and done, we all suffer from many of the same problems. And there's this issue that people, I, I don't know, they they think that their rights are going to be taken away for some reason that's that's what i've heard through many of my conversations and i i just think there shouldn't be a stigma about mental health because everybody has mental health you know and even counselors need counseling how do you ever get drained and just want to say hey Enough's enough, man. I'm I'm done. And how do you get through that? Drained? No. Burnout? Close or
2: kind. I treat myself like a client. I do the things I tell my clients to do for the most part because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I readily admit to my diagnosis. I readily admit to strategies I do. If I tell a client to use a wellness recovery action plan, I might reflect on my own wellness recovery action. I believe in a concept called Ubuntu. I am because we are, and I make sure I have the right people in my circle and the right people to support me as I support them. You know what I'm saying? Education, uh, I'm a lifelong learner. So always learning strategies and interventions and talking with people and getting stories that have the recovery element, that have a support element to show people that, you know, the path doesn't have to be as negative as you deemed it to be. When we have anxiety, oftentimes the things that we're anxious about never manifest. When we worry, they never manifest. The things we fear never manifest. There's an acronym called fear, S E A R, false evidence of real. And nine times out of ten, that's exactly what it is. Um, Reminding myself that, you know, to halt, to never get too hungry, too angry, too lonely, too tired, how we think of acronyms. And just trying to do the best I can do to be well. And when I'm not well, taking a break in order to get well and stay well. I have a clear cutoff time regarding the mental health work that I do. I try to adhere to an agenda as much as possible because I find that a written agenda is a clear way of me working in my wellness as well as doing what I need to do and staying on task. I try to go to sleep on time. I try to get enough rest. That's not always going to be a guarantee because I love TV. And I love media. And I definitely love podcasts. Um, and just day by day, some days are harder than others. I, Even as a licensed therapist, I still have a supervisor on tab who I, I meet with um, biweekly, not because I have to, but because I want to. I want to be accountable to somebody I want somebody to be able to tell me what's what or to support me in what's what before me to avoid ethical traps. As if we become burned out, we might start doing things that we're not supposed to do that can jeopardize our livelihood.
1: You have a very level head on your shoulder, and I love what you do. I, I think you're a bridge builder, and I think we need a lot more people out there doing what you do. How can people to hold of you and connect with you and Get some of your services.
2: You can reach me at any time. My, myself, as well as my network of people with like mine at morethantherapy.org. That's morethantherapy.org. More and that connects to all relevant social media, as well as podcasts related to more than therapy, as well as wellness and recovery. There's trainings and modules that we do, the supervision that we provide. Peer-to-peer services that we provide, as I feel somebody, you can talk to somebody regarding what you're going through as a clinician or as a helper is beneficial, or even as a layperson is beneficial. Um, actively participate in NAMI and NAMIs in a lot of communities in a lot of areas, and that can be beneficial regarding getting support or learning more about diagnoses and getting support regarding diagnoses. And that's that. I welcome any communication. You know, I have a turnaround regarding um, responding to correspondence, any questions, anything you want to talk about, anything you want to contribute to or anything you want contributed to. we're more than happy to help you at More Than Org. Well,
1: I'll tell you, I do want to thank you for being on the Dead America podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk to people like you. You know, it's... Thank you. It's remarkable what you do. Keep doing it. And thank you for being here today.
2: Thank you, sir. Thank you for having
1: me. Thank you for listening into the podcast episode today. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. Also, please follow us on any of your podcast players or If you'd like to get a little more personal with us and really identify what we truly are about and get involved with what we are doing, make sure you go over to the Google Play Store and download our new app. We can't wait to get involved with you. And that's going to finish up this episode of the Dead America podcast. Make sure you come back next week and follow along for another great interview. I'm Ed Waters, out.